this morning what we're going to do, uh, I want to do just a, a quick but not too quick kind of review of everything that we've talked about in the past seven weeks. Um, maybe you missed a week, maybe you missed a couple weeks. Uh, just kind of want to give a big picture of where we were. Uh, and then for the last two-thirds, half of the class or so, talk about the Reformation going forward. Um, so, so what for us? What are some of the, the key implications that come out of the Reformation for the way that we live the Christian life uh, here and today? So let me pray for us, and we'll dive into this. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning again for your word, for who you are, and for what you've done for us. Uh, we thank you for men like Martin Luther and John Calvin and many others that we haven't talked about in here, um, men who are passionate for your word, passionate for your glory, uh, and so they, they worked uh, to bring that word and to show your glory uh, to your people. And Father, I pray this morning as we uh, review a little bit, as we talk about implications for today, uh, that you would make us grateful for these men, uh, grateful most of all for your work uh, in the world and in your church. Do this, we pray, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So we started off at the very beginning uh, of this class. The first class, we didn't even get to Martin Luther and the 95 Theses. We just kind of introduced what we were doing. We talked about why study church history at all. Um, we said, first of all, that it's important. Um, we looked at Judges chapter 2, uh, where you know, Joshua has led the people of Israel into the Promised Land. They've captured all these cities, uh, and then he dies. And verse 8 says, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. So I'm 30, and I spent half a day yesterday repairing a roof. And this morning, from here down to here is about as tight as it can be. And Joshua was conquering the promised land until he was 110. Um, so I'm going to stop complaining about that. Um, and they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath Harris and the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. So everybody that had fought with Joshua died. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, and then the key phrase, or the work that he had done for Israel. When we forget church history, we forget who we are. We forget our identity. Uh, we forget where we've come from and the way that God has been at work uh, in the church throughout history. And so it's important that we study church history. So I hope that um, this hasn't been just you know, to check off the, the church history box on your list for the next couple of years, but this, this starts uh, a curiosity in you to keep looking into these things. Uh, a couple resources um, that could help you do that. These are all in the resource center. Um, we'll go from biggest to smallest. Um, Calvin on the Christian life and Luther on the Christian life. This, uh, this is a series that Crossway does where they take a, a key um, theologian, Calvin, Luther, Jonathan Edwards, St. Augustine, Francis Schaeffer, J.I. Packer, uh, and they work through their lives and do a little bit of biography and talk about their theology, especially as it pertains to the Christian life. Uh, so if you're interested in Luther or Calvin specifically or any other church history figure, um, check out that series there. Uh, the Unquenchable Flame is a, a quick survey of the Reformation, uh, and it goes kind of geographically. So it talks about Luther in Wittenberg, it talks about Calvin, uh, it talks about John Knox, it talks about the English Reformation and the Swiss Reformation and all these different areas uh, to kind of expand some of the things we've been talked about, talking about in here. And then finally, the Reformers and Puritans as Spiritual Mentors. Um, each chapter focuses on a different person. It uh, gives a little bit of biography and then what we learn from them. So this, this would be similar to this book and what it does, but this does it for seven people and this does it for Luther. 
Um, so that, those are a few resources that would help you uh, continue in your study of church history. And we, we have a whole section in the Resource Center called, um, I think it's called Classics and Saints or something like that, where it, these are historical works, um, you know, biographies, that kind of thing about church history. That would be a great section to go to continue uh, the study of this important church history. Um, Number two, we said that the study of church history is the study of God's providence. Uh, we believe, as we've said the past couple weeks in the sermon series, that God is the Almighty Father, that he hasn't just created everything, but he's governing everything, and that especially includes his church. And so he's governing his church and caring for it in a special way. And when we study church history, we're studying the work of God in the world. Third, church history humbles us and situates us. Um, on Wednesday night, we're going to do a review, discussion, um, interaction about the shack. Uh, some of you may have read this book almost 10 years ago when it came out. Uh, some of you might be preparing to see the movie. Uh, it's, there's some issues with it. There's some controversy around it. And so we're going to get together and talk about those things. Um, what's positive, what's negative. Um, just kind of give an example of what it looks like to critique something from a Christian worldview. Um, and one of the key critiques that I have with the shack is that there's nothing about historical Christianity that the author finds helpful. Um, not the gathering of the saints in the church, not scripture even at times, um, not family worship. Uh, there are all these practices that have, have marked the historic church that he's just ready to give up because he doesn't find them helpful today. Church history humbles us and situates us. It says we're not the first people who have tried to figure out what this Christian life looks like. We're not the first people to try and figure out, okay, what does it mean that God is three in one? Um, the study of church history reminds us that we're not the start of the Christian church and we're not the end of the Christian church. You know, as long as Christ delays, there will be more believers after us. And so we're concerned not just with ourselves, but with the future. So we train, we teach, we disciple, um, we plant churches, we spread the gospel. Uh, because the, the Christian church didn't start with us, and as long as the Lord tarries, it won't end with us either. And then number four, the study of church history protects us. We said it protects us from doctrinal error, from fear of persecution, uh, from the, the winds of the culture, uh, all these kinds of things that the study of church history can protect us uh, from. And, and we talked the rest of that day just about what it was like in the, the church before the Reformation. Uh, what would it have been like to be a Christian? We talked about mass. We talked about indulgences and pilgrimages and penance. Um, the fact that everything was in Latin and you didn't speak Latin, so you just kind of were an observer. Not a participant in worship, but an observer of worship. And, and the, the beginning of that shift when we get to the Reformation. A few weeks later, we, you remember, had all the cathedrals that we looked through to kind of give a, a sense of, okay, this is what, describing worship, but as you came to church, as you came to worship, what, what were you walking into? What were you seeing uh, as you worshiped? That kind of thing. And we talked about some people in this class. We talked about Martin Luther, obviously, in his 95 theses and um, you know, nailing that list of uh, of disputes of um, talking points really uh, to the door at the church in Wittenberg and we said that you know we, we see it as this great moment of of protest where you know he walks up in the middle of the day sun shining and and pounds these big nails into the door and says you know no more and really he's like can we talk about these things 
Uh, he wasn't saying, you guys are wrong, I'm going to go start my own thing. He, he really passionately wanted to reform uh, the Catholic Church, uh, as we call it now. Um, but he, he wanted to see the church grow closer to Scripture, uh, not to break with it. But, but the snowball effect that that had of leading up to the Diet of Worms, where he says, you know, here I stand, I can do no other. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. Uh, we talked about, after that, his re- reforms in Wittenberg and how they progressed. Um, talked about his marriage to Katie. Uh, remember the, the fishy nun? Um, and how he got... Um, was everybody here when we talked about him being married to Katie? Yeah. Who was here for that? Or who wasn't here for that? Let's see those. Okay, this is a funny story, so we'll tell it. Um, in the... It's probably 1530s, um, something in there. The Reformation is progressing in Wittenberg. Um, and several other German states didn't like the Reformation. They were still Catholic. Um, but Luther, um, because he writes a lot, because he's a bombastic personality, uh, because the printing press exists, his works are getting out and people are reading and, and leaving the Catholic Church for uh, this Reformation church and starting to agree with them. And this happens especially in monasteries and convents, because these are people who can read, who are educated, who can read the scriptures and the languages uh, that they have. And so, especially in the convents and the, the monasteries, they're emptying. So monks and nuns all over Germany are leaving the Catholic Church. And there's a particular state where this whole convent had converted to Martin Luther's way of thinking, and they all wanted to leave. But in that region of Germany, if you left, you know, if you forsake, forsook your um, nun vows, whatever those are called, um, then you were executed. Like it, it was a capital offense to, to walk away from life in the nunnery. And so th- this group of nuns wrote to Martin Luther and said, what do we do? And he felt responsible because it was his writing and his, you know, at, at least in some part, his reformation that had caused this. So he arranged for them to be smuggled out of their convent in the back of a wagon that was carrying herring. You know, it was a wagon loaded with fish, and all these nuns crawl into the wagon and get covered up with fish and shipped off to Wittenberg. So they get to Wittenberg, all these, all these nuns who are no longer part of a convent but don't have husbands, don't have property. Like, they're, they're the orphans and widows that James talks about. Like, you know, and so Luther, again, feels responsible. He finds husbands for all but one of them. And so by the end, he's just like, all right, I'll marry the last one. Um, and, and it's Catherine von Bora, and they have a great marriage and a lot of fun. And um, I think it's just a funny story. It was like, well, I'm responsible for these, and they need husbands, and I'm not married. So here, here's this reformed nun and this reformed monk who are leading the Reformation. Um, they actually lived in the monastery in Wittenberg that also had been evacuated because... Everybody had converted and left. Um, so their home was the monastery, and that's where he taught, uh, where he, he preached from. Uh, they hosted students, and that's where Table Talk starts. You know, you're familiar with the, the magazine that Ligonier Ministries puts out. It's named for just kind of those evening conversations uh, that Martin Luther would have with his students, and then one of them would transcribe them, and they'd, they'd publish them around. Uh, that's where that comes from in their home. Uh, so we talked about Martin Luther and, and the Reformation in Germany. We talked about John Calvin, the Reformation in France and Switzerland, uh, kind of his submissive spirit, his humble spirit uh, to where he, wanted, he really just wanted to be a scholar. He wanted to read and study and write and encourage the church intellectually. And you know, he, he goes to one town on his way. Uh, he goes to Geneva on his way to Strasbourg because there's this great library at Strasbourg that he wants to live at and study at. 
And somebody in Geneva says, no, you're being like Jonah. You need to stay here and, and lead the Reformation here. And so he's like, okay, fine. Um, so he stays. And then they kick him out and he gets to Strasbourg. And he's like, finally, I can study. And somebody there's like, no, you need to lead this church of French refugees here. And he's like, okay, fine. And then he gets called back to Geneva and goes for some reason. Uh, and you remember he was preaching on, I think, Job when he left. And comes back after they kicked him out three years later and picks right back up in Job. Uh, because he doesn't have an axe to grind. He doesn't need to get even with the people of Geneva. Uh, he just wants to bring them the word of God. Uh, so we talked about John Calvin and his, um, his, his passion for the glory of God. And, and the result that that had in him was profound humility and submissiveness when he felt the Lord's leading. Um, I think evidence, especially uh, after his death, uh, he requested to be buried in an unmarked grave in the city cemetery. Uh, so we don't know where his body is because he, he didn't want us to know. He said, you, you need to focus not on me, but on the glory of God. So we talked about uh, some, some personalities. There are a lot of, of reformers that we didn't talk about. Uh, there's a reformation in England. There's um, the Anabaptist uh, Reformation uh, and the, oh, what's it called? Um, up further north in, in Europe. Um, there's Reformation all over the place, but these are the two key figures, and so I wanted to focus on them. But more of them are, are talked about in the Unquenchable Flame uh, book. We also spent time talking not just about the people in the history, but the doctrine of the Reformation. You know, we started off with Sola Scriptura, that the Bible alone is our ultimate authority, and we looked at that in the Christian life, that this, the Word of God is central to us in the Christian life. Uh, it's necessary for us. It's, it's indispensable. Uh, it, it's our life according uh, to itself and according to the reformers. Um, and we also looked at the reformers' emphasis on the word of God in the church, um, the centrality of preaching to the reformers. Uh, we'd spent um, maybe 20, 30 minutes talking about their doctrine of preaching and how important it was and how crucial it was for the life of the church, uh, that, that when the preacher stands up and preaches the word of God, it's the word of God. Uh, and we looked at our reaction to preaching. You know, we, we looked at the Westminster Confession. What does it mean to respond, to receive the preaching of the word? Uh, what does it mean for us to, to interact with it, to test it against scripture, to put it to practice in our lives, all those things. So we did Sola Scriptura, and then we did, uh, in one week, we did Christ alone and grace alone. Um, talked about Christ as our only way of salvation and grace alone as um, the, the means of salvation, that we're saved only by grace, not by works. And, and to do that, we contrasted, if you remember, the, the Roman Catholic conception of sin, uh, that it was kind of sickness, um, laziness really kind of reduced to that, um, with the, the Reformers' notion of sin, that it was actually death, uh, that it was sickness that had run its course and we are dead. Um, some people describe it as not just drowning in the ocean, but you know, dead and decaying at the bottom of the Mariana Trench. Um, and so corresponding to that, the different notions of grace. Because if, if sin is just sickness, then for the Catholic Church, we said grace is like a can of spiritual Red Bull. It gives you that, you know, that extra pep uh, to get your immune system working again, to give you some energy, to, to actually get you out and go live the Christian life. Um, but for the reformers, grace was resurrection. It was rebirth. It was taking a dead heart and making it alive. And so the, the difference that I think a lot of times we don't realize how crucial our, our understanding of sin is for the way we worship, the way we live the Christian life, the way we think about God. Because if sin is just an inconvenience or just a weakness or just something that's done to me, then grace really gets minimized. But if sin is something that I've had a hand in and, and results in death, 
then God, God must be really great to reach down and pull me out of death and, and to remake me. And it must be at his initiation. So, so make sure, this is an encouragement this morning, make sure your doctrine of sin lines up with what the Bible says about it. Uh, because if it doesn't, you'll be stunted in your Christian growth. And we spent a whole week talking about faith alone. What does it mean that we're saved through faith? Uh, we talked about some misconceptions about faith, um, some, uh, some ways that we misunderstand this. Uh, and we gave the example uh, of my grandparents driving over a bridge, uh, that my grandpa is really confident behind the wheel of a car, um, and he you know, will like jerk the steering wheel to mess with my grandmother, who basically just prays under her breath the whole time she's going over a bridge because she's worried it's going to collapse underneath her. Uh, or, or that my grandpa is going to like careen off the side. Um, but the fact that they both get over the bridge, not because of their confidence in it or anything like that, but because the bridge itself is sound. Um, you know, Papa Jim has really strong faith in the bridge. Nana B has really weak faith in the bridge. But they both get across the bridge because the bridge is able to take them. That, that's our faith in Christ. Weak faith in a strong object is enough to save. And, and we look specifically at Romans 5.1. Uh, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We said that if, you're, if your theology doesn't have room for peace with God, then you need to rethink your theology. Because, because as, as Paul says, we've been justified by faith, therefore we have peace with God. Not let us have peace with God, or someday you might be able to have peace with God, but you've been justified, therefore you have peace with God. We don't always feel like that, we said, and talked about some reasons that that might be. But if, if our theology of salvation doesn't have any room for settled assurance, for peace with God, then our theology of salvation is wrong. So again, make sure that your theology of salvation matches up with the results of it that the Bible gives. We talked, too, about justification and sanctification and compared those two and said, you know, justification is this legal declaration that you are righteous. And sanctification is that process that God puts you through where he actually makes you righteous. He makes you what he's already declared you to be. They're both works of God. They're both crucial for the Christian life. Uh, But we talked especially about the importance of getting them in the right order. The Catholic Church had basically switched it and said, you know, you you pursue sanctification all your life so that hopefully at the end of the life you can be justified. You know, you've done enough, you've worked enough, accrued enough merit or um, given enough to the church, that kind of thing. Um, and, and we still do this today. You know, we base how we think God is thinking about us on how we're doing. Um, just this past week, I was in a Bible study with um, some people, and we were reading a passage, and uh, it talks about our conduct and reminds us of who we are. And their key takeaway was, you have to get yourself right before you come to God. Um, that's a misunderstanding of justification by faith. And, and so we talked about that and corrected that, that, no, God is the one who makes us right, and then our, our lives conform to that. Um, you know, the, the reformers would have a lot to say about either side of that, you know, making ourselves right before we come to God, or saying, oh, I'm, I've already come to God, therefore I don't have to live any particular way. Um, but we confuse the two often. We put sanctification first and base our justification on that. And the reformers say, no, here's, here's this declaration of your righteousness that Christ has given you. It's not going to be taken away. Um, Yes, pursue holiness, but in the knowledge that you're already secure in your Father's hands. And then last week, uh, I wasn't here, but I got to listen to Jason talk about Soli Deo Gloria. Uh, I hope that you guys were encouraged by that. Uh, He did a fantastic job um, saying that all salvation is to the glory of God, that really all of creation and life is to the glory of God, and the implication that that makes for us. Uh, it's, It's hard sometimes for us to say, 
every single thing that happens in the world is to the glory of God alone, especially when you tack alone on there. It's like, wait, aren't there some other legitimate purposes that God could be about in the world? And yes, they are, but that his ultimate aim is his own glory. And again, that humbles us. So with that semi-quick overview of the seven or more hours that we've spent together in here talking about the Reformation um, give me a little feedback for, for you guys. What stands out? What's been the most helpful? Um, what's been challenging, encouraging, convicting? Um, in 50 years, when I'm teaching this class again on the 550th anniversary of the Reformation, <laughs> what do I need to make sure to keep in? Uh, what, what questions do you have that I didn't get to? Um, give me a little feedback. Yeah. Um, this just occurred to me as we were talking about the centrality of, of preaching, and we have some lovely Christian neighbors from a different tradition, who were talking about how they're in their church back home, they have 15-minute sermons. Mm-hmm. Well, we're going backwards from where the Reformation went, because, I mean, didn't they used to sometimes preach two hours or so? You know, yeah, especially that? once you start getting into the Puritans, there's like, it's an all-day affair. Like, yeah. you go for worship, scripture reading, prayer, they take a lunch break, and then they preach for like four hours. The more yeah. service is like music and everything else, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, and it's funny to hear Bill talk about that too, because you know, here, here's that other other people around have sermons that are 10, 15 minutes, or like a little homily. It's like my introduction is usually like twenty minutes long. Um, yeah, thanks, I appreciate that. What else, Lynn? It occurs to me that it must be horrible to be a Muslim or a Roman Catholic and live your whole life with a great big baby. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That just seems. Like an incredibly harsh thing to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that, you know, I, I think that, that Luther and Calvin would certainly agree with that, and that's why they were, that's why they they seem really, really angry at the Pope. And they say, like, we read them, and it was like, wow, I can't believe that, like, one of the fathers of the church said this in print about another human being. Um, but it's in that, um, you know, they had that vitriol and that anger towards the hierarchy of the Roman Catholic Church and the Pope and the bishops, but towards the people of the church, they had great compassion. Because, like you said, there's no hope uh, of salvation in that. There's, there's a wish of salvation, but there's no settled assurance of it. And so uh, for their compassion for you know, most of the people in the church led them to, um, to, I think, justified anger at the ones perpetuating that error. Yeah. Yeah, Kate? Mm-hmm. We're not the only ones, and there will be people behind us that will try to figure out what it means to be a Christian. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Yeah. Did the Catholic Church make any major changes after their Um, Not really. They just kind of got more entrenched in what they were already doing. Um, and I think it was 1546, the Council of Trent was there solidifying a lot of things that just had had kind of over time been the status quo um, that Martin Luther was challenging. But then at the Council of Trent, they said, no, this is actually church doctrine, and we authorize this. And still, um, to, to this day, um, you can buy indulgences, and you have to do penance, and um, all these kind of things that Martin Luther's like, we really should take a look at this. They're like, no, we think this is right. We're going to make it official church doctrine now. Yeah, Mike. What do you have to say about how they're on But wouldn't you think that scripture alone people 
What you mean, like no creed but Christ, no doctrine but the Bible? Uh, we'll talk about that a little bit. We're going to talk about the denominationalism that has arisen since the Reformation. So, good question. We'll get there in a little bit. Yeah. Yes. There's a couple of things. One, I really, really appreciate being reminded of our peace with God, and that we don't have to keep working and working to try to get there. That's just a very comforting reminder. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm also reminded and, and informed as to the importance of the Reformation to the world, to mm-hmm. mankind, and to our country. And for folks who dispute that this country was based on Christian principles, they need to go back and read Fox's Book of Martyrs mm-hmm. to see what the forefathers were escaping from, mm-hmm. so many of them. Yeah. And so. Um, the forefathers of, of Protestantism, our, our faith, um, did so much for the whole world. And I'm not trying to deify them or anything, but uh, it, it was literally uh, world changing. Mm-hmm. And um, it's. Yeah. It reminds me I'm in the right place. Yeah, so that, that's good to, to, to spend a little time not talking just about 1517 to 1540 or so, but, but carry it forward a little bit into some of their missionary endeavors and um, that kind of thing. Okay, that's helpful. So, Thanks. Yeah. Fox's, Fox's Book of Martyrs. F O X E apostrophe S. Fox's? Yep, Fox's. Yeah. Rick? Um. I know sometimes it's thought that what we're doing is academic and uh, dry, but I, I just found it um, refreshing and that it built a confidence um, that I wanted the sanctification, mm-hmm. you know, so Good. knowing that. So I would encourage you, you know, keep the depth. Okay. <laughs> keep the application. All right. <laughs> All right. Anything? Yeah, sorry. I know we're coming up to the Semper Reformandi, and when you mentioned uh-huh. that, that just really rang a bell, and especially as we're doing the Bible study on Wednesdays, and it's uh, they have a nice little blurb about the, or like a one and a half page summary of what the Gospel Coalition is about. Mm-hmm. And I thought, yes, that's it. It's yep. like, like, it's like, as the church moves through history, you know, we look at scripture and make course corrections because we get off base. Mm-hmm. So it's like continually making those course corrections. And I guess we see that with denominations and these differences among the denominations. Yeah. And you see that, you know, ongoing struggle to be the church is the way God wants us to be the church. Mm-hmm. Yep. I think it would be great for you to do a series like this with the youth. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and I think if you keep the Bible, I mean, keep the depth of the scripture and that kind of stuff but I think the biographical information pulls them into it mm-hmm. and keep them interested and okay. I think it would be a great I'll just give my notes to Tim and let him do it yeah, yeah that's right <laughs> 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 especially those who grew up in the church tend to take it off for granted mm-hmm. so much of it and I think Great, thanks. Last word? Did anything I left out? Anything you were like, man, I really wish you would have talked about this? 
Wittenberg in England. Uh, England? Okay. Yeah. He lived in one fort, I believe. What's that? Well, we know that he who began a good work in you will carry it out completion in the day of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Justification, sanctification, pushing towards our glorification. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else that I left out that you're like, man, why didn't he? I heard this was a topic in the Reformation. Cool. All right. Well, if you do think of something, um, write me an email, send me a phone call, leave an anonymous note, um, you know, whatever you need to do. Um, Yeah, Dale. Where is Pilgrim's progress? Uh, probably like 150, 200 years later. Um, John Bunyan was one of the uh, Puritans, and uh, so he's writing later on in England, um, kind of after after the initial Reformation comes through, and it, it's expanding out to other places. Um, I, I, I'm not sure, but that's another book that's in our resource center uh, that if you haven't read yet, yeah, don't read The Shack, read Pilgrim's Progress. That'll be a lot more helpful for you in the Christian life. Um, What's that? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, just nail it straight through the, the glass there on the front door. That'll go over well. Um, yeah, as we said, we're, we're looking at this next section of... of sorry, did you have one? Well, I was just going to make a quick... Peg and I took a trip to Germany several, a few years ago and, and followed the footsteps of Luther and Del. But now the the door at the church where he nailed the 95 Theses, that original door, which was wood, burned. Mm-hmm. They replaced it with a metal door. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We don't have time for this again, so no more disputes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but they, 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 they molded into the bronze door the, all the 95 Theses, so they're there forever. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Wow. But we, we now have post-it notes. Yeah, we've got post-it notes. We've got scotch tape. Like, you, just, you really don't need to go destroying property to start a conversation. There's always duct tape. Yeah, duct tape, scotch tape, masking tape. you got all kinds of options. Um, well, as mentioned, was Pilgrim's Progress? Okay. So, 150. All right. Pretty close. Um, Semper Reformandi. Uh, we mentioned this a few weeks ago. Uh, Semper Reformandi means always reforming. Uh, the, the idea being that, you know, yes, the Reformation happened, started in 1517 and, and kept going for several years, but that didn't solve all the problems of the church. That didn't perfect the church one and done, and now we just keep doing what they did. Uh, the, the understanding of Semper Reformande is this fifth reason that we study church history that I'm going to add to our list. Uh, it corrects us. Um, church history, especially as it points us back to Scripture, um, redirects us back to the to the main course uh, gets us gets us back on the main road uh, corrects us where we've gone astray and this is the notion of simple reformandi that we are always reforming that that we we can't be so prideful as to think that there's nothing we need to address in our church in our lives uh, in our devotion to god um, there, there's a few people uh, one person in particular here at the church who i won't mention who it is but every time i have a conversation with this person um, they, they always add something about, man, what's going on here at the church is so great. It's just, I, I love the church and love the staff. It's so great. Um, and, and I agree with him, but I wonder if he has a notion of Semper Reformandi, that, that yes, what we're doing in the community and the sermon series and, and education is great, but, but if we think we've arrived and that there's nothing to address in us, um, 
John would say we're deceiving ourselves. If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. So in an effort to continually correct ourselves, to uh, evaluate where we are uh, with Scripture, uh, we have this notion of semper reformandi. And a couple things that come out of the Reformation that I think are especially helpful for us today. And this first thing is the elevation of the laity. Um, you know, we talked about how in the Catholic Church, the laity, um, so there's uh, the clergy, which are priests, bishops, the Pope, all that, clergy, and the laity, which would be everybody else sitting in the church. Um, what the, what the Reformation did was elevated the laity because in the Roman Catholic world, uh, pre-Reformation, you were an observer. You came and you watched the Mass happen. You, you listened to the readings, but you didn't need to understand them. Uh, the, the thing worked on its own. It didn't, matter, um, it didn't matter what you were thinking about it, what you thought about it. Uh, just by participating in it, by observing it, you got benefit from it. Uh, the Protestant Reformation really elevates the laity, and it did that in two ways. Uh, this first thing, that, that Protestant work ethic, um, you might have heard of this before. Um, this comes out of John Calvin um, his, and his focus really on uh, all of life to the glory of God. Uh, because what do we say about work, especially, you know, um, what was his name? The guy that did dirty jobs. Um, Mike Rowe, yeah. Um, he, Mike Rowe goes around. And he's got this show on Discovery Channel, I think it's on Discovery Channel, called Dirty Jobs, uh, where he'll ride around for a day with garbage collectors, and he'll go around for a day with exterminators, or um, some of the weirder ones that he does are like slug harvesting in Alaska, or something like, like just these really gross things. And the tagline is, you know, it's a dirty job, but somebody's got to do it. Nobody really wants to do these jobs, but for our society to function, somebody's got to do it. Calvin would take issue with that sentiment, that it's a dirty job, but somebody's got to do it. He, he would say, it might be a dirty job, but you can do it to the glory of God. Um, that, that nothing is, no work is beneath the believer because it's not, it's not ultimately for them. It's not ultimately for society. It's ultimately for the glory of God. And so that elevates whatever we do. So today, I don't think there are any garbage collectors in here, but if there are, you can collect garbage to the glory of God. You can sell houses to the glory of God. You can uh, work for Hargrave to the glory of God. You can, you can do any kind of work, assuming that it's submitting to the word of God, to the glory of God. Um, and this is one of the key uh, shifts in mind frame and, and shifts really in uh, productivity for people. Because if you're just doing work because you're supposed to, or you're just doing work because you need to get enough for your family, but there's no real option for advancement, then you're just going to do the work and you're not going to care about it. But if there's this greater aim, uh, if, if you can glorify God in your work and by your work uh, and through your work, then there's, there's a greater aim, there's a greater motivation to it because we're participating in glorifying God. And so this God that the reformers are showing to the people in their preaching, um, you know, exalted above the heavens and the that the people, in a lot of sense, are meeting for the first time because they're finally hearing about him in their own language. This God I can honor by plowing my field. This God I can honor by, you know, being a mason and, and cutting square stones all day long. Uh, that gives a new vigor and a new life to any pursuit that we have. That all of life, especially, and even our work, no matter what it is, can be done to the glory of God. And that, that produces integrity in the way people work. That produces... Um, you know, people start to honor God by the way they work, not just uh, their means and their methods, but the way they interact with others, uh, honesty in business, uh, that kind of thing, all done to the glory of God. Yeah. Um, in our life group, we were doing the Truth Project, 
So often it's the other way, though. You know, you you put the fish on your business card so that Christians will have an extra incentive to hire you, but you don't look any different than the non-Christian business. You're still doing the same tactics. You're still not paying your workers enough for that kind of thing. Um, but for the flip side of it, that that for something for work to be done to the glory of God, it, it concerns not just my frame of mind when I'm doing it, but the way that I go about it. Yeah, yeah, Dale. Yeah. Sorry, he beat you. In modern terms, I guess a lot of people. Say taking ownership mm-hmm. of what you do as your job or your vocation, mm-hmm. and when you think about that, that kind of encapsulates it. Because if you own it, then you take pride in what you do, you have a passion for it, and, and you work to the glory of God as a believer. Yeah, because that's your calling. Yeah, and, and and taking ownership, what we call taking ownership today, might in the past have been described as um, stewardship, uh, but that that's a word that we don't really use much so we we borrow from another word and make that word mean less and anyhow uh, but stewardship the 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 recognition that you know abraham kuyper said that god looks out at the universe and there's not a square inch where he can't say that doesn't belong to me um it's all his and and he lets us steward it he lets us care for it and work it and protect it um so that you know we're, we're improving what's his we're giving glory to him and that notion of us being entrusted with the Father's creation uh, and that we can glorify him in that is a, another layer of this Protestant work ethic. Yeah. Taking that just a step further, this Del Tacket um, from the Truth Project was saying, taking the verse, you know, in six days you shall labor. Mm-hmm. And of course, that is a Sabbath basis. Let's take the six days you should labor. This is patterned after God's mm-hmm. creation. He's telling us, in a sense, you get to be creators, you know, <laughs> or creative with my creation. Mm-hmm. So the work then becomes our expression of creativity that God's instilled in us. I think that's a cool Yeah, thing. yeah that, that work is part of that. And, and you know, that, that's a great example of how, if we're glorifying God through the way that we work, uh, especially as we direct other people, um, the law of God will influence. Who has not ever been frustrated to be on the highway and really craving a Chick-fil-A chicken sandwich, but it's Sunday? Yeah. Okay, it's, it's so frustrating. You know, see these billboards like, oh, chicken sandwich. Dang it, it's Sunday. But then that, like, when I, when I say dang it, it's Sunday, um, something's gone wrong in me, not with Chick-fil-A. Um, but, but that understanding of that, that part of honoring God and glorifying God in the way that we work, in the way that we call others to work, it, is letting them honor that work-rest cycle. Yeah. Does somebody have their hand up along? Oh, you're just, I don't you're just chicken, te- te- oh, you don't need chicken. All right. <laughs> gotcha. So the Protestant work ethic uh, is one side of it. The other side of it that you have there on your sheet is the priesthood of all believers. Um, if you have a Bible, flip over to First Peter chapter two. First Peter. Yes. Mm-hmm. But you know, I think Christians should be the biggest, not to, not to elevate nature, right. but to elevate 
Yeah, that you know, chapter two of the Bible. This, the, I'm trusting you with this world. Work it and keep it. And, and basically, what that command is: here's the Garden of Eden. Um, and when God says, fill the earth and subdue it, he's saying, take what's right now a garden and make the whole world look like that. Um, you know, shepherd and, and, and make creation flourish. Don't take advantage of it, that kind of thing. So yes, rightly understood, Christians should care a lot more about the environment, not in a deifying way or you know, spiritualistic way, but in a glorifying God way that we're stewards not just of the work that he's given us, but of the creation that he's given us as well. Um, so First Peter chapter 2 um, starting in verse 9, Peter tells this persecuted group of um, newly converted Jews, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Um, that echoes back to Exodus 19 and Moses' speech to the people of Israel as they approach Mount Sinai and are about to be given the law. So they've just come out of Egypt and, and, and God tells Moses to tell the people, I brought you to myself on eagle's wings to be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, a people for my own possession. And here, Peter reminds now these Christians that you're still part of that Abraham-Moses stream. Uh, this is not a new thing, but the fulfillment of what I've been doing all along. And when you have a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, the point of that is to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light to others. Because the priest's job is to appear before God, to, to represent someone else before God. Um, you know, in the Old Testament world, to make sacrifices. In the New Testament world, it's more about prayer and intercession uh, because the sacrifice has been made and it's been done. Um, but this idea of a whole nation of priests that then is representing the other nations before God. Martin Luther um, repurposes this for the church. Uh, he, he continues that stream of... Um, of Israel, you are a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. Church for Peter, New Testament church, you are a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. Reformation church, you are a kingdom of priests. And one of the implications of this is that every single believer has access to the throne of God. Um, before the Reformation, if you needed to get to God, you had to go through a priest or a bishop or a saint. Uh, you went and did a pilgrimage. You couldn't, you're not holy enough to approach God directly. But what Peter says, what Paul says, and what Martin Luther picks up on is that we've been declared holy and we have access to the Father. We have access to the throne of grace. So there doesn't need to be this, this special class of Christians um, that you come to when you need to pray, when you need to understand the word. Every single believer has the Holy Spirit and is thus a priest. And so we talk about the priesthood of all believers. Now, Martin Luther would go on to say that there are some who are gifted to teach, some who are gifted to evangelize, some who are gifted for all these other things. And so we still have this, this other class within the church, but it's not a, it's not a distinction of access. Um, it's more a distinction of gifting. And, and they didn't call them priests. They called them pastors because every Christian is a priest. And some of the priests also happen to be pastors and preachers. Um, I think this is a helpful correction for us uh, because what happens to me frequently, I eat out a lot, eat with a lot of people, um, and we pray before we eat because that's just you know what you do in the South um, is you pray before you eat. Otherwise, the food's not going to nourish you and you're going to get sick and all these terrible things will happen to you and your family if you don't pray before you eat. Um, anyhow, 
really true. Usually, what, yeah, that's really true. That, yeah, it's first obligation seven sixteen or so. Yeah. Um, what I will do when the food comes. Um, so fair warning, if you ever go out to eat with me, uh, when the food comes, I will as quick as I can say, "Will you pray for us?" Um, or, or look, Rick, will you pray for us? Instead of waiting for them, it's like, okay, so do you want to bless it? And some the, people's reaction tells me a lot about what they think about what a pastor is and, and who they are in Christ. And and some people, you know, lean into it and they pray, and it's great. Um, some people are a little caught off guard, and um, you know. Uh, all that kind of thing. The, the last time I went out, somebody beat me to the punch and they said, will you pray for us? I'm a recovering Anglican and I'm not used to this extemporaneous prayer yet. Um, so he, he, he beat me to the punch. Um, but th- this, the fact that we all have the same access to God the Father, um, I don't think has sunk in uh, with us deeply enough. Um, you know, I, I, I get asked to pray at, at family gatherings at Extended family gatherings, the, the first Thanksgiving that me and Trish spent together. Uh, we've been married for like two months, and we go up for Thanksgiving with her dad's side of the family. And the only time I've met some of these people is at our wedding. And like, you know how you meet people at a wedding. Like, oh, your cousin Susie. i got to go talk to these 20 other people that are waiting to congratulate me. Um, so we're up there for Thanksgiving, and I've, known, I've been in this family for two months, and I've known these people for a grand total of like three hours. And we're sitting down to Thanksgiving dinner, and um, the host family looks at me and says, will you pray for us? Because I'm in seminary, and it's like, I must be a really good prayer. And my, my prayers must have extra power to them or something, because I'm in seminary, and I'm studying these things. And it's not that at all. Um, that we all have that same access to the Father. Uh, my, my prayers are not more effectual because I'm a pastor, because I'm ordained. Um, <laughs> I, might, I might be more practiced at doing it out loud, but they're not more effectual. I don't have special access to God that, that, that you guys don't. We are all a kingdom of priests. The, the priesthood of all believers elevates the lady to says, you can read and understand the Bible for yourself. You can pray and come before God on your own. Uh, you don't need to go through the priests. Yeah, but to a non-believer... What do you mean? If I'm a non-believer, I, I wouldn't go, ah, I can pray. Right, but but that's why we call it the priesthood of priesthood of all believers. Yeah, that that it's those who are washed in the blood of the Lamb who have that access to God because there's nothing standing between us anymore. Yeah, yeah, right. I was just thinking that it's an unbelievable opportunity for you to teach that principle when you get asked. Yeah, like I'll be happy to pray, but you do know that <laughs> as a believer, you have the same access mm-hmm. to God as that. Chuck. I think to Mike's point a little bit, um, the non-believer considers the prayer a speech to the people, mm-hmm. and, uh, and the believers <coughs> are amazed that the throne would listen to us and interpret our mistakes anyway. Yeah, Amen. yeah, yeah, and you can always kind of tell when it's someone's praying just for form's sake, um, praying because they know people are listening, and so they're. Like you probably don't pray like that, um, that kind of thing. But yeah, um, is it is it when I pray? Is it more for you or is it more for God? Um, it should be more for God and for all of us. We have that access to God. Len, did you have something? It seems to me there's also a problem with it, and that is it requires a lot of self-discipline. Whereas in the Catholic Church, the discipline is imposed from the outside, mm-hmm. and you're required to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
So if you're not self-disciplined, the, the, the privilege is meaningless. Right. Yeah, and I think that speaks too to our understanding um, of salvation because in the Catholic conception, um, if it's not if it's not imposed upon you, then it's like, oh, fuck, I don't have to do it. And, but here, if we've already been justified, if we've already been brought in to our Heavenly Father and, and into family and relationship with Him, then we have the privilege of access to Him. It, it's not this requirement that requires our own um, self-discipline to get started, but it's this privilege that we have and that we're invited to take advantage of. Um, yes? Yeah. So, but I mean, this discipline is a good thing too, definitely. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and that's part of the, the prayer that, that Luther is talking about is not just for yourself, but for others. Uh, that the, the church um, prays together for others. Uh, something that we do as a family that we stole from somebody else that you guys should steal from me. Um, in our family worship, uh, after, after dinner, me and Sophie play for a while, and then we sit down to read the Bible. Um, sing a hymn based on whatever the letter of the week is because Trisha's teaching her the alphabet so it's P this week so we're singing praise the Lord the Almighty Um, and then we always pray for another family that we know and the way we decide that is we have all the Christmas cards that we got last year and we kept them and put them in a box and on Sunday night Sophie draws one out and that's the family that we pray for Um, so if you didn't send a Christmas card (laughs) tough tokens for 2017 Um, (laughs) that's right yeah so, our address is 5 Gumtree Road, Apartment G5, um, for your Christmas card mailing list. <laughs> but, but for you guys to do that for, for one another as well, um, you know, it, it, it's a privilege to be able to go to the Father uh, on behalf of someone else. Yeah? Everyone we encounter situations where we're around somebody that we know or have strong reason to believe is not a Christian. But they do. They know we are, mm-hmm. and then they reference that they've been praying about something, or they want to pray about something. I, I've always had kind of a loss. Of mm-hmm. Just encourage them to go ahead and do that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it, it's almost reached the level of just a platitude. You know, thinking about you, praying for you, um, whether or not you really are. It's just, oh, I'm sorry to hear that things are going that way, and I think this might make you feel better. So this is what I'll say. But yeah, you can um, and. I think that's a good thing for us to get in the practice of. Rather than saying, oh, I'm praying for you. When someone shares something difficult, I'll pray for you. Like, do it right there. Say, can we, can we pray right here? Just, you know, 30 seconds or, you know, duck into the corner for a minute or something like that over the phone, uh, whatever it might be. But, but take that opportunity and come before the throne with one another. Um, I, I'm going to fast track us a little bit more because we're, we're getting down to the wire. Um, which one do I want to talk about? <laughs> Get your address out of here. Um, all right, we'll, we'll do similar use to that packet door. Um, so Martin Luther uh, has his two um, 
He draws a contrast between two different theologians, by which he means all believers. Again, because all believers are priests, all believers can read and study the Bible, and all believers therefore have a theology. Whether or not you can articulate it or not, you have certain beliefs about God, about Christ, about salvation, and and they should be right beliefs. Um, And so he he divides kind of our, our theological tendencies into two categories, the theologian of the cross and the theologian of glory. And the distinction is, um, theologian of glory is the bad one. Because they look at the natural world, they look at the way things seem to work in the world, and, and take their theology from that. And say, you know, creation, you know, life seems to work by reciprocity. I do this, and I get this back. I do this, and I get this back. So that must be how our salvation works. That was the Roman Catholic, uh, his, his kind of summary of how their theology works. But the theologian of the cross looks at the way God has revealed himself and says this is how salvation works because it's been revealed to us. Um, And so uh, this comes from the Luther on the Christian Life book. Uh, The theologian of glory will understand the word power when applied to God as referring something analogous to a king's power, imposing and coercive. But the theologian of the cross gives the word different content. Power is revealed through weakness. And the idea of wisdom, the theologian of glory will understand wisdom in terms set by the world around. Intelligence, knowledge of how to play the system. The theologian of the cross understands wisdom in terms of the incarnate God hanging weak and broken on a cross. A contradiction of all that the wise of the world around us would expect. Theologian of glory will understand righteousness as outward, visible quality constituted by good works. The theologian of the cross sees in it the the one who is sinless, yet made sin for others. The theologian of glory sees life and death as antitheses, and the latter as something to be avoided. But the theologian of the cross understands that death is actually the gateway to true life. So Martin Luther draws this distinction between a theologian of glory who who takes his understanding of how God is, who he is, from what he sees around him, and and even from what he would like to be true. Uh, It'd be great if things worked this way. The theologian of the cross, though, sees everything through the lens of the work of Christ on the cross. And, and through that lens, the wisdom of the world looks, the wisdom of the cross looks like foolishness to the world, uh, but we see it, we understand it as the true wisdom of God, even though it looks like foolishness. So there, there's a difference in perception and reality between these two things. And, and that's, uh, that helps us to understand this phrase, simul justus et peccator. Um, simul justus et peccator was Martin Luther's way of saying, um, at once justified and a sinner. And he says that this is true of every single person in the world. Um, but it depends on how you understand it. For the theologian of glory, the one who's looking at, at the outward things and determining reality from that, they look at themselves and, and see and believe that they're justified. My works are good. I'm trying really hard. I'm being really good. In reality, our works are filthy rags. There's nothing good that we can do towards our own salvation. And so the theologian of glory, the one who's not interacting with Scripture, not interacting with the truth of the gospel, believes that they are justified, believes that they are a good person and accepted before God, when in reality... They're just piling on sin. They're just piling on on works that are not salvific. The believer, on the other hand, they see that they're a sinner. This is the reality that they they wrestle with. This is the reality that you and I wrestle with day after day. Why why did I get so angry? Why why can't I stop thinking about this thing? 
why do I get so frustrated by X, Y, Z, or why can't I stop lying? We, we see the fact that we struggle with sin and there's, there's still um, cleansing that needs to happen in us. But the reality is that we are justified, that we are declared holy by God. And so, so for the theologian of the cross, for the believer, this is really good news. Because it says, yes, you're a sinner, and you still struggle with sin, and you're going to struggle with sin until the day you die. If you say you have no sin, you're deceiving yourself, and you're a liar. But you are still justified. God's declaration about you is still, well done, good and faithful servant. Um, this is a great reminder for the Christian life, for that moment when you're struggling with sin, for when you're thinking, I need to get myself right before I come to God. You say, no, I am at once justified and a sinner. Uh, even though I'm justified, that doesn't mean I don't struggle with sin. But just because I still struggle with sin doesn't mean that this has gone away. Um, so rightly understood that that similiusis et peccator, I think, is a great help, a great um, memory for the Christian uh, in, in life. Um, this, this last thing on your sheet, being reformed, um, is kind of where I want to end for us. You know, we're talking about Semper Reformandi and the church's continuing need for reform to be redirected to Scripture, uh, redirected towards the truth. Um, really, what's happening, what the, what the reformers highlighted was the opposite of the Roman Catholic conception. In the Roman Catholic conception, you reform yourself. You, you do the work, you, you work hard, you do all these good works, um, you try and be righteous, um, go on pilgrimages, do penance, confession, all this stuff, and, and you work really hard to make yourself acceptable to God. Um, the heart of the Reformation, though, is that we are the ones who are being reformed. Uh, as we read scripture, as we hear the word preach, as God works at us, we're the ones being changed. Uh, yes, we participate to some degree in that in our sanctification, but it's overwhelmingly the work of God in us, changing us, making us into new people. And so as we leave from this, I want that to be the thing that you remember. Um, that you know, we talk about the Reformation and talk about uh, how do we continue the Reformation and, and where do we need to change things. Don't forget that you are being changed, uh, that you need to be changed, and that mercifully God is at work changing you. So we'll close there. Uh, I have a few more resources that I think will help. There's this whole section on the Word of God. Um, but we spent like three classes talking about the Word of God and preaching and all that. Um, just that the Reformers thought the Word of God was vital. Um, it was the heartbeat of the Christian life, the heartbeat of the church. Uh, and so a couple of resources on that. Um, anybody get Christianity Today? Christianity Today. Anybody get that? You should get it. It's good again. Um, yeah. uh, Jen Wilkin has an article in here that's called Let Bible Studies Be Bible Studies. Um, she's talking about how like a church, the church uses the, the term Bible studies as a catch-all for any group gathering. Um, so we're going to have a, a men's breakfast. So, well, let's call it a Bible study. Um, somebody will pray at some point. Um, she's saying, no, that the Bible is central to the life of the church, to the life of the Christian. And so, so we need to define our terms well and actually teach our people to study the Bible. Um, we have several resources for that in the Resource Center. Um, Knowable Word, which is a nice short little one. Um, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, which is a little more imposing. Uh, and then the one that I would highly recommend to anybody in this room is Women of the Word. Um, the, this is uh, how to study the Bible. It's called Women of the Word. Uh, and it's by Jen Wilkin, who, uh, if you're in the women's Bible study on Wednesday, she's the one leading that. Uh, I read that a year ago, last year, sometime. Um, it's probably the best book on how to study the Bible that I've ever read. And I'm really frustrated that they marketed it to women. 
Uh, I, I, I kind of want to like slap a different cover on and say, here, read this book. It'll teach you how to study the Bible. Um, all, all those are in our resource center as well. Um, but just a plea uh, to us to study the word, uh, to read it, to internalize it, and to be reformed by it. Let me pray for us and we'll, we'll call it a morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, again for your word, for your goodness to us, for justifying us, for working in us, for um, declaring us righteous, and, and that that means we can appear before your throne. And that means we can read your word. That means we can um, bring others uh, before your throne with us. And so, Father, I pray that you would uh, settle those truths in our heart. Um, help us to see you. Help us to know you. And help us to talk about you with others. Do this, we pray, for we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.